just in general, I will say that I always like guys who go around the outside. If you're cutting the strings on the hay bales, then you're, you're doing it the way I like. <laughs> it's not always the smartest, but it's the most fun to watch. <laughs> Episode 11, Tank Slapping Podcast. We're back. Short week for us. Nothing going on. So, hell, let's do some podcasts. Got Jake Johnson as my co-host as always. Jake, what's your week? Uh, how's it going so far? Huh. Well, my uh, one thing I can say is my vehicles have never been so clean. That's <laughs> that's all. It seems like all I can do. I washed my van a couple times, washed Jody's car, did a little vacuum detail. But yeah, that's uh, that's about it. Just uh, I, I, it looks like everybody else is kind of on the same. Uh, I seen you're on the same program a little bit. You got a lot of time to kind of go through, and everybody's posting things on on Facebook for sale and <laughs> just uh, <laughs> trying to make a living somehow. Try going going through all the stuff I don't need, and uh, you know, trying to sell some stuff. And yeah, that's uh, that's about it, really. Yeah, we got we could have quite the uh, yard sale right now for motorcycle enthusiasts between all these racers trying to make a few <laughs> extra bucks. But with that being said, um, we're looking for show sponsors for this show. What a better time to advertise than right now when everybody's stuck at home listening to podcasts. So our numbers are growing every week. And for right now until the end of the month, we're doing half off every single one of our um, sponsorship levels for the show. So if you're interested in sponsoring Tank Slapping, give us a call or send us a message, whatever works best for you guys. We're easy to find, and uh, I'll send you a proposal. So, yeah, just, man, same. It's For me, I did an interview yesterday with the local paper. They called me. And uh, his name's John, John Walk. He's like, hey, what are you doing to make, make money right now? I mean, this is probably bad for you, just like it is anybody else. I'm like, yeah, dude, it sucks. <laughs> we're not making any money right now. Um, and the business that we're in, you know, we have to ask for sponsors for money to promote them. And all these companies and, you know, businesses within the industry, they're all struggling. So for me, growing up in the sport and having a family-owned dealership, I feel bad asking sponsors for anything right now because I know they're struggling I'm struggling. Everybody else is. So it's it's a tough deal to try and make money right now as a racer. But, you know, stay patient, try and save up as much as we can. And um, I guess it is nice that all these restaurants and bars are closed because I'm saving a lot of money that I would you know, normally spend on takeout and, and drinks with the boys on Tuesday nights. But, yeah, it's just it's just crazy right now. Yeah. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, that's the biggest thing right now is just trying to stay busy and we've got some projects around the house. I guess that's kind of what everybody's doing right now. Trying to, trying to finish up some, some unfinished things. And, uh, but the problem is you can't get anything, you know, if you, if, I know, you know, it's, I mean, I guess, uh, at least in Pennsylvania, there's, you could still go to home Depot. I think hardware stores are still open and obviously grocery stores, things like that, but you kind of feel weird about going out. You I know, know. And you don't I necessarily just had a pressure have washer to. delivered to me. I didn't want to go to <laughs> Home Depot to buy a pressure washer, uh, so I just I just had one shipped to me from Harbor Freight. <laughs> I just didn't want to, yeah, I don't want to go anywhere. Like I know what I'm doing precautionary wise, but I don't know what everybody else is so relaxed about this whole deal. And uh, thankfully, you know, I'm more of I live near the city, but I'm more suburbs. So there's only I think there's only been two or three cases like within the whole Lancaster County area, but. Um, yeah, it's just uh, one of those deals. But 
Before we get too far into it, I want to announce our guest. This is somebody I'm really excited about having on. I know Chris Carter is a big fan of our guest. Jake, obviously, is a fan. everybody's a fan of, of our guest tonight, and that's Dave Despain. So been talking with Dave a little bit here and there on Twitter, back and forth, and I had somebody suggest, why don't you guys get Mr. Despain on the show? I'm like, dude, I'd love to have him on. So I reached out. Thanks to Matthew Miles, a good friend of mine, for providing his contact information, and, and Dave was into it, man. He's like, He's like, well, it depends. What are we talking about? You know, he's very insightful and likes to do his homework, obviously, as a, a sports broadcaster before he gets too far into anything. And I'm like, dude, all we do is talk racing, bullshit a little bit. And he was into it. So I'm excited, Jay. What What are your Dave Despain memories? I mean, did you get to race when he was still doing his thing or was that uh, before your time? No, I actually have a, a pretty funny story when, uh, you know, you told me we were going to have him on the show. I was first thing that popped to mind was. Uh, my first uh, 883 race at Charlotte back in 2001. Um, some of the races, I guess, over those years, obviously everything wasn't on TV, but there were certain rounds that were. And and I ended up going out and getting second and ended up winning the race in the end because, you know, I think we've talked about on other shows, William McCoy got, got DQ'd. Uh, so it gave me the win. And uh, the race was being broadcast on, uh, on Speed Channel at the time. So, uh, you know, I was... 17 years old or something like that obviously still living at home mom and dad and kind of before cell phones things like that so the the house phone rings my mom or dad answers and hey jake phone for you and i'm like oh who is it dave to spain <laughs> yeah right <laughs> you know and, and back at that time i guess i don't know if there was just less to do or or if maybe it was just the age you know prank calls were, were a big thing back then so i'm like who the fuck is this calling to pre pretending to be Dave to Spain? Right. So, you know, I answer the phone, I'm like, hello. Oh yeah, it's Dave to Spain. And I'm kind of like a little standoffish. I'm like, yeah, right. There's no way. There's no way. And he kind of keeps talking, keeps talking. I'm like, Holy shit, this is Dave to Spain. You know? So it was kind of neat. Uh, you know, I guess, obviously, like you said, he likes to do his homework before he gets, uh, gets in anything. So like I said, it was kind of my first big pro race and nobody really knew who I was. So he just kind of called to get a little background and, and how the race went and things like that. But, uh, it's, it's but crazy. Yeah, so that's, that's the whole house phone thing, man. That's like, yeah. <laughs> that's like my like middle school years. I'd have to call my girlfriend's house and her mom would pick up and I'd yeah, and hey, hope I that her dad didn't answer. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can I talk to Morgan? It's like, and the funny thing was my middle school girlfriend, her mom was my math teacher. So every time I'd call, I would basically be calling my math teacher to talk to my girlfriend. <laughs> and it was just a weird deal. Like kids today, there's no way like any of these kids would have the testicles to pick up the phone and call basically their mom to speak to their girlfriend every single day. That's what we had to do back in the day. It's kind of funny that he called your house phone. It's just like, it's just crazy how times have changed since, since we, when we were younger, like it's just wild. Now it's funny. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that guy, I mean, Dave to Spain, he's, I mean, I remember as a kid, anything that I watched motorsports, motorcycles, NASCAR, IndyCar, what, like it always seemed like he was the guy. He was like, it was like him, Larry Myers, JB. JB later, yep. But uh, but yeah, those like early nineties shit all the way into two thousand. I mean, even to to this day that, that Dave Despain is I mean, he set the standard, I think, for uh for motorcycle announcers and just, you know, his his whole opinion on the on, on racing and everything and obviously he's a big flat track fan. But yeah, I'm I'm actually really nervous about this show. I feel way underprepared. I feel like <laughs> 
I'm, I feel like we're way out of our league here, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, mean, I, think, I think we could just say, Hey Dave, talk and he's, he's going to make it good. So, uh, yeah. So, well, yeah. The cool thing about him, he's got no filter kind of like we, we don't have a filter. Like Dave always said what was on his mind. He didn't beat around the bush. Uh, I have a couple questions for him because of that. You know, my, my take on things is very similar. If I feel something, I'm going to say it. And it's got me into some trouble over the years, but I've kind of come now to where I'm a little bit older and I kind of accept that. So I want to kind of ask Dave how he kind of approached things when you have no filter, which I like. I, you know, there's a lot of robotic, politically correct people in this world right these days. And Dave is like a testament to being able to say what's on your mind and it, and it for it to work. And he had a really extremely successful career. So yeah, it'll be uh, it'll be cool. I, watching the old shows with uh, Dave and Bill Warner, you know, I, I used to just like cover up Bill Warner and kind of mute him every time he talked. And just listening to Dave was was just awesome. He he did a great job. And ESPN days with Flat Track, you know, there's still some really cool videos on YouTube that you can look up. And uh, yeah, I, I suggest doing it. You know, I had Michael Locke. He was on the show last week, and after the show, he texted me. He said, "Hey." what was that guy's name? And how do I find that video of Rusty Rogers? And I, I sent him the link over and, and he checked it out. So there, there's definitely some, some good videos on YouTube. Now's the good time to go on there and watch some old videos. Me and Jake, Jared, me, Spryer, Shana, we were all spending our time around Christmas time. We watched a bunch of them. There's some good ones. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was kind of doing the same last night. I knew, uh, like I said, Dave was going to be on the show. So Kind of went back on YouTube and watched some old uh, early 90s, uh, Peoria, Pomona. Um, somebody on Facebook posted the the 1992 uh, Parkersburg race that we were talking about. So I went back and watched that again. And yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, it's just cool to go back and uh, look at just how things were different back then. And, and it's cool to just kind of, whether you think it's better, worse, different, whatever, it's just kind of cool to watch some of those old races. And, and I don't know, it's just, uh, just to kind of compare it to today and see how we can make, uh, make things better today or, or what the, you know, what's better now than before. But, uh, I don't know. It's just cool to go back and, and reminisce and, and, uh, live the old days again. For sure. I wanted to also talk to you about, they had a it was a virtual race, virtual NASCAR race, oh, and they geez. broadcast it on TV. All the drivers were, were at their houses, and I didn't know what people were talking about initially. I'm like, what the hell are they talking about? NASCAR? It's on TV? What do you mean? I was so confused. I did some research on it, and yeah, there's just like, it's a virtual race. Denny Hamlin said he's gotten more interviews and things like that now than when he's ever did a an actual race and NASCAR, uh, someone mentioned, I saw online to be kind of interesting to do a flat track version of it. I don't know how that would work, Jake, but what were your thoughts on the virtual NASCAR race? I mean, as much as NASCAR kind of sucks right now, it was actually better than what the normal races are right now. I thought it was all right. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. I mean, they're making the best of a bad time, I guess. I mean, it's, it's virtual, but I mean, that stuff is, it's pretty realistic. You know, our very first show guest, Paul Lynch, he has a, a setup in his basement for, uh, eye racing, which I believe is probably what, what that I NASCAR was. thing was yep. through. And I mean, you wouldn't believe it, like the, the rig and everything he has. And it's, it's as real as you can get other than, getting in a real car, I guess. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all they can do. So it's still the same guys racing against each other. 
Well, it's, Earnhardt raced it, which was cool. Yeah. He's retired. He came out, Earnhardt Jr., and a couple other guys. I think Bobby Labonte raced it, who was, like, my favorite driver growing up. I had a friend that worked for, for Bobby Labonte, the 18 Interstate Batteries car. And, uh, yeah, I, th- I thought it was cool. I mean, it's – I mean, obviously, it's not as cool as the real thing. I, I can't wait till we can get back to normal shit, normal racing. Yeah. Um, but, man, it'd be cool, like, to line us all up, have the uh, – you know, like the Bubba Schobert and Chris Carr, Parker versus Jake Johnson, Jared Meese versus Briar Bauman, Shayna, uh, a little virtual reality kind of battle between errors a little bit. I mean, I, granted, I don't think Jay Springsteen knows how to probably work a virtual reality motorcycle, but I think it'd be pretty cool that, uh, hell, they could drink beer and race pretty much yesterday. Uh, I saw some one of the drivers tweeted he was eating a an uncrustable or something while i was driving so no nah, it, it was cool it was something to do i earlier today i was on my facebook live just uh on my race page just doing videos of crews ripping around the basement on a stasic just giving the people something some kind of motorized activity but yep speaking of i'm looking at chris carter he's wearing a sideburn magazine tee i got an article uh, on tires in the latest issue of sideburn uh issue 40 so you get a chance, check that out. Uh, spent a lot of time on that article, and it's kind of funny. In England, they pronounce or they spell tires T Y R E. Um, I think the rest of the world spells it T I R E, but uh, it's just kind of funny. Every time I would send something over, he would like change the I to a Y. I just I don't know, just different culture thing. But not nothing else news wise going on. Uh, racers listening, post some videos, doing doing stuff, man. Let's give people something to kind of watch rather than depressing news and, and shit like that. So uh, if there's anything interesting going on, post some videos or something. We want to see something. Briar posted an old video of him at Springfield TT. Of course, he was crashing in it. It's kind of all I remember Briar from the early days is just racing and crashing, racing and crashing. I'd be like, dude, this kid is such a moron. Like, he literally rides like an idiot. If he would just stay on his bike, he could probably be a good rider. And then... I remember we were leading up to Daytona. I had no idea him and Sh- I knew they were friends, him and Shayna, but I, I didn't know they were like kind of talking back and forth to a, like a serious degree. I show up at Daytona one year at the hotel we're staying at, and there's Briar Bauman sitting on my couch, like at the hotel, the condo we're at. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? He's like, oh, he was like all shy and shit. I'm like, what are you like? I, I, Shayna kind of broke the ice. Yeah, well, he's going to stay with us this week. And. Ah, I was not a Briar fan when they started dating. I, it's this crazy California kid that always crashed, and uh, I wasn't a huge fan. But whatever, we're, we're good now. We're we've learned to kind of accept each other, and it was kind of cool though. Jake, did you see that video he posted from the TT? Yeah, I'm the one that sent it to him. Uh, <laughs> I was I was watching. Uh, it was Springfield TT. I guess 2012. I guess it was his rookie year, and. I don't know. I was just scrolling through YouTube or whatever, and it popped up. I'm like, oh, let me check this out. And yeah, and it was just, it's no different than, than today. It was just the Briar Bauman highlight show, just of complete sketchiness. Um, I think he, he, he cut out the one part, the very first corner. He blows, you know, is, is sitting second or third, blows the first corner over the jump, comes around the next lap, burns it off in there, high sides off of somebody, crashes. And that was just the heat race. <laughs> so then uh i i think i fast forward i didn't or they skipped the semi i didn't show the semi so who knows what happened in the semi but he made the main came from the back row and uh 
yeah, I think then there was a clip of him just just not shutting off and going past Johnny Lewis and the right hander, blowing them both <laughs> wide. It was just, yeah. yeah, it was, I was, I was just laughing the whole time and I was, you know, screen recording certain uh, clips and sending them to him. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, it was pretty funny, but so some things haven't changed. I mean, he's, he's just as exciting and just as sketchy. He just figured out how to not crash as, as much now. So, yeah, yeah. I was going to say he, he's, you know, he's, he runs it in other people. He's good at taking out front wheels. But he doesn't crash as much now. He's developed a little bit more bike control, maybe. But <laughs> I was not a Briar fan when they started dating. I, I just, I just didn't understand why. Like, I'm full on East Coast, and at the time, Briar was just a full on California, just nut job. And uh, I remember telling him, like, dude, I was like, I don't care. You date my sister, but you do anything, I'm gonna shoot you. And I was like, I'm not gonna like shoot you to kill you. I'm just gonna shoot you in the leg. Um, so you have to deal with that for a while. You know, I, I, I don't shoot the kill. I'm just going to shoot you in the leg. And, uh, he still tells that story quite a bit, but since then, yeah, we're bros. Briar's my dude. I'd do anything for him. And, um, but yeah, I just love watching. I kind of forget about that early, that era, Jake, a little bit, the 2010, the 13, the, the Jake Johnson, uh, king of the flat track series, man. Uh, the, the domination, I, I like going back and watching those, those years. I mean, you see a lot of the nineties, you see stuff today, but you don't see a lot of, you know, 2006 to 2012, kind of like my early years as a pro. So when that video popped up and Springfield TT, when it was a national, uh, that was a stacked heat race. I was actually in that heat race that he posted. I was like more of a mid pack guy, but I, I was in there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is cool to look back at, at some of those races and it kind of sucks because nowadays the last three, four five years, I mean, you can go anywhere, you know, fans choice or YouTube or whatever and watch every lap of every round, heat races, semis, everything. But the years, you know, 2010, 11, 12, you know, I guess when you could say I was, I don't want to say at my prime because I can ask, dude. Know. But yeah, I mean, you know, but I can't go back and watch any of it. I mean, you can get bits and pieces of it here and there and, and, you know, a few races were televised. So it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's something you kind of take for granted now. Um, you know, I, I guess, especially in our sport, uh, motocross, supercross, MotoGP. I mean, you can go back to the, you know, eighties and watch everything, but, uh, flat track has been so under the radar, you know, until, until as of late. Um, so it's, it's kind of hard to go back and, and try to find some of those moments and, and I mean, races. The best, the best, the best thing I can say, and we owe a lot to her is Miriam flat track live. I mean, those early years, what she did and the coverage she gave for free was, is just not talked about enough. So definitely a shout out to Miriam flat track live. All she did like in those early years and it was flat track live was huge. And I know she's got other things going on now, but man, she did a lot for the sport in a short amount of time. Um, so yeah, the, the page is still active. You can go on and look up old video highlights. I went on and I saw the, uh, I think when we had Halbert on the show, I found the Halbert Wiles fight, uh, after one of the races or whatever, it, it was, it was good. It was, just, um, at one point it was like a Sammy Halbert live slash flat track live, but mm. Sammy had some really good highlights. So that's, it was still interesting. But yeah, that was that was a, a good time in the sport. It's good to find old videos. But I told Dave we'd call him at two thirty and let's give Dave Despain a call. Chris Carter, make it happen. Dude, I've never been more excited to call a guest, I'm telling you. I'm a little nervous too. Don't I be mean, nervous. He's it's gonna be great. I mean I'm gonna I'm gonna send it, but yeah, I'm a little Here we nervous. go. 
Hello. Dave Despain, Corey Texter, Jake Johnson here, Tank Slapping Podcast. How are you doing? Doing all right. How are you? Oh, not bad. Just uh, like the rest of the world, trying to get over all this nonsense, no racing stuff we got going on and get back to racing. It's just been, uh, it's been, it's been crazy. Yeah, I'm afraid it's going to take a while the way it sounds. Not, yeah, uh, yeah, not it's, it's, a, it's a bummer, but now nah, we're doing the podcast here. We, we try and give the fans something to hear and something to talk about. And a lot of people wanted to hear from Dave Despain with your roots to flat track and, and things like that. But what have you been doing since you were doing the full-time gig with uh, the racing stuff? I don't know how I managed to get everything done back when I was working because now I'm not working, but I can't keep up with my doodle list. I've got so many <laughs> things that uh, it's, it's, uh, it's crazy that... Uh, I don't know, just uh, taking it taking pretty, I'm not nearly as connected to the racing world as I was, and I never really realized the extent to which, you know, we covered so many different kinds of racing on the last couple of shows that I did, and so now I was sort of forced to stay in touch with all that, and I liked it all, I enjoyed it all, but some of that has just filtered away, I'm not nearly as close to it as I used to be. And on the other hand, I've become a lot more interested in some kinds of racing that we didn't really give that much coverage to. So I'm not sure how that's all evolved, but it still keeps me pretty busy. Yeah, it's it's crazy how that, that works out. It's uh, it's kind of probably like being uh, being a, a professional racer yourself. I mean, you've been, been around it for so long, covered so many different things that I can't say that you get sick of it, but like you said, I mean, it's, you've covered so many different things and I'm sure it's, uh, you know, a change as, as when a, when a motorcycle racer retires, I'm sure it was a, a big life change and kind of, you know, what do I do now? You know, I, some people worry about that, that how are they going to keep busy when they retire? You know, I've worked weekends since I was 18 years old. Um, you just sort of, when one world that's been so all consuming kind of ends, suddenly you realize there's all this other stuff going on that, yeah, it'd be kind of fun to check that out. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm putting together a, an iRacing rig. Never played a video game in my life, but kind of was paying attention to how that whole thing was evolving. We had a an iRacer on wind tunnel years ago that ended up getting a real racing ride because of his iRacing experience. And I just never really had time to spend you know, thinking about it. Well, here I am with time on my hands. And the more I checked into it, the more I thought, you know, that that's probably a lot of fun and gives me something at the age of, you know, going on 74 years old to keep my reflexes a little sharper and my eye hand coordination and all those things that start to, you know, go away. Um, so I, you know, that's, that's going to end up consuming a lot of my time because I'm so clueless about computer stuff it'll take me forever just to get it to work but uh, uh i think it'll be a lot of fun i'm looking forward to it we were just talking about that they had the nascar race yesterday so that was that was pretty funny you brought that up because we were kind of on the same page we'd like to give it a try but um as far as your broadcast career you were always known as a straight sh- straight shooter on the mic uh, i'm kind of the same way you know with my interviews and the stuff i post on social media you know you're never scared to tell your opinion um can you think of a time where you had to second guess what you wanted to say, or maybe you said something that you're like, eh, maybe I shouldn't have said that and caught some flack for it? Well, every time we covered NASCAR, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty, pretty standard procedure to get a call from somebody. 
and I only say that half jokingly. Uh, you know, they've always had the attitude that when you become part of their press corps, you should become a cheerleader. And I never really thought that that was the purpose of the media and media coverage of any sport. I think it's healthy to have constructive criticism, and we tried to be constructive. But, uh, yeah, I know of one time, and I suspect there were other times when the call came from Daytona that said, you need to get rid of the Spain. <laughs> and uh, fortunately, I worked for people who, you know, didn't see it that way. So I managed to keep my job until they shut the network down. Um, but, yeah, for the most part, I think people appreciated the fact and and still appreciate reporters who are willing to report what they what they believe and, and, and what's true um and it's unfortunately becoming less and less the case i think there are fewer and fewer people doing real reporting and a lot more cheerleading and those who do have the courage and i'm speaking now beyond just sports but to the world in general, those who uh, who do have the courage to uh, to report the facts get uh, rewarded by some some pretty heavy criticism from pretty high up the food chain, or in the case of uh, Saudi Arabians, chopped up in little pieces. So it's um, <laughs> you know it's always been kind of a tough gig if you take it seriously and try to do it right. I'm not overinflating what I did. I covered racing. I mean, come on, that's not you know that's a little different situation, but. Uh, but I still think it's the same thing. It's 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 worthwhile a to figure out as closely as you can what's truly going on, and then two, tell the people who need to know. Yeah, there's yeah there's definitely a, a a balance there. I've always thought you've done a great job with that. Where, I mean, there's a difference of uh you know just being negative and and bashing something than to just telling the truth and what's going on and and you know covering what's what's happening. Um, but yeah, like you said, it's there's a lot of cheerleaders in the world now today, which sometimes you need that. But uh, speaking of that, I, I mean, you covered a lot of forms of motorsports, motorcycles, cars, NASCAR, you know, every everything under the sun on on wheels you've you've been a part of. What was the most fun to cover uh, as far as like the the drivers or the or the riders who had the best personalities as far as uh, you know sport? Was it NASCAR? Yeah. Was it flat track? IndyCar? Um, who had the had the yeah. most entertaining guys? Hard to, hard to generalize because they you know they, they they sort of stand out like like jewels in the crown. You know, there's one here, one there, one over there. The, yeah. the first part of your question is easy. What you know, what was the most fun? Definitely motorcycle racing um, because it's what I love and and what I knew best when I got started. It's how I got started in the television business. Uh, totally totally by accident. But then once I got into it, and my sole goal was to cover motorcycle racing, but I kept getting, quote, promoted, unquote, into car racing, <laughs> which most of the rest of the world perceived as an upgrade and I perceived as, you know, sort of punishment. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, you know, that's just the way the economics of the thing were. So I ended up covering lots of other stuff, but it was always a real thrill to get to come back home and and cover, you know, especially a flat track race, but also road racing. Not so with motocross and supercross. I was never close to that. So I don't think I had quite the same place in my heart that, that flat track and road race did. So that was the most fun. Now, who has the most interesting personalities? I can't pick a particular 
form of racing that seems to generate more of that than another. And my tastes were probably a little odd sometimes, too. I mean, I think Kenny Roberts is a fascinating character. Kenny Roberts can be a real jerk. And I've seen both sides of that, uh, sometimes in the same interview. So, uh, you know, it, it depends on how you define colorful. But, you know, the names that come to mind, John Force from the drag racing world is just a, an amazing person to, to try to interview. Um, you know, Jeff Gordon was interesting to me because I got to see him from the time he was still a teenager up to the, you know, media celebrity star, whatever that he's, that he's become. So they're, you know, different criteria for what we consider to be an interesting personality, but racers in general, I think are fascinating people. Uh, when you do something dangerous intentionally and take into account the risks and, and, you know, you look around and you see the guys that see the riders that have, that have been hurt, um, pursuing a dream, it's just, you know, racers are wired a little differently. And, and I've always found that to be a fascinating aspect of their personalities. And I, and I envy it. I never had the, I never had the talent to be a racer, but I always like to think that I probably had the right, some of the right mindset. Um, you got to be a pretty focused individual to do that for a living. Oh, absolutely. I mean, reaching the top at any sort of job or sport or anything, it, 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 we're all kind of wired the same. You know, it's, that, that was an excellent answer. I, I really enjoyed that. Um, a while back, I did, a, I did an article where I listed the top 10 most accomplished riders in flat track. And I didn't have Kara Wesweber on there. And you told me on Twitter that he needs to be on there. So I was like, well, who should I take off? And you said, it doesn't matter. Somebody needs to go and need to add Res Weber. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, Jake Johnson's my co-host here, and he I had him on there as number ten. So is is maybe Jake's getting the boot? But what made Carol? I mean, he was a rider from the late fifties, early sixties, and you know a lot of a lot of races back then weren't weren't broadcasted like the you know the races from the eighties and nineties, and obviously today. You know, what made a rider like him so good? You know, I know his stats are irrelevant because back then there weren't as many races. I think he has right. 19 wins, which it doesn't seem like a lot, but in the grand scheme of how many races he did to how many he won, talk a little bit about him and why you felt he deserved to be on the top 10 list that I put out. Okay, uh, fair enough. I, I, I'm not personally going to kick Jake off. I'll leave that up to you to do. But <laughs> as far as Carol is concerned, and, and and it's one of the disappointments of my life. I insist on him being on that list, even though I never saw him race. Uh, he was hurt, career-ending injuries at Lincoln, Illinois, just at the time, might have even been the same season, might have even been the same month, uh, that I saw my first Grand National race at, at Peoria in 64, 65, maybe. So I never saw Carroll race. But as the years went on, and I did kind of become a, a student of the stats and the history and all the rest of that, I gradually began to realize when you look at the guys he raced against, when you look at the equipment and all the other factors that, that he was, you know, in his time, he was just unbeatable. He won, what, three championships in a row or four championships in a row? Oh, yeah. another, he would have had another had he not been hurt. You know, his... his and he, he did things nobody else did. You know, we all know that in a flat track race, you run wide open down the straightaway, throw the thing sideways, 
you know, turn the wheel to the right, gas it up and turn right to go left and all the rest of that. And he was the first guy I know of who figured out that if you, if you run down in there and turn the wheel the other way and push the front end into the corner, you can slow down, which, you know, they didn't have brakes as a safety measure, as some people find that hard to believe. But if you think about it, when you're in a big pack and everybody goes down in the corner, you don't want somebody in the middle of that pack freaking out and jumping on the brakes and, and tangling <laughs> up everybody behind them. So you couldn't do that. You didn't have brakes. And it was, you know, it was a safety factor that they eventually got rid of because of the risk in the pits, not on the racetrack. Anyway, the point is, there's no way to slow the thing down. So he figured out you could slow it down by pushing the front end into the corner. So, you know, for a lot of people, that's a little bit difficult to get your head around. Okay, I'm going down the straightaway and I want to turn left. So I turn to the left, and then when the front end starts to slide across the racetrack and squeal and make noise, then I know I'm doing it right. Um, he was he was a, a, a scientist of the sport. He was like a dick man, maybe, uh, in terms of how he studied it and, and the things he knew about it. And he was a very colorful personality, um, you know, not always in the best way. I mean, he did a little time during his life. Uh, he, there's, there's a, there's a funny story that, uh, he had, a uh, his mechanic's name was Ralph Burnt and the, at the Harley factory, the guy in the guard shack was a sort of an amateur painter artist. And Russ Weber saw a painting that the guy did. It was actually of a mallard duck. And he told Burnt that he thought it'd be cool to have that on the gas tank of his motorcycle. So Ralph went and had the guy painted, and somehow it ended up being called the Blue Goose, even though it was a mallard duck. Uh, so that bike became very famous. It was the Blue Goose. It was Russ Weber's Blue Goose. <laughs> but he showed up at Springfield, uh, fast time all the story, and was over in the pits, and they were feeling pretty good about themselves. And Walter Davidson walked up and looked at the motorcycle for a long time, and Carol didn't quite know what to think. And so he finally walked over and offered his hand. Hello, Mr. Davidson, Harley Davidson, obviously the guy who writes the checks. And, uh, and, the, and the guy said, Carol, what kind of motorcycle is that? And Carol said, well, that's a Harley Davidson motorcycle, sir. And he said, I see. I thought it looked like some kind of duck bike. Uh, I couldn't really tell, couldn't really tell what kind of motorcycle it was. Kind of made me wonder how come I pay you to ride a duck bike. And, and so they quickly figured out that they needed to put a Harley Davidson gas tank back on the motorcycle. Uh, and Carol, you know, learned his lesson. He was a, he was a, you know, he was a legendary guy in the formative years, not of the sport, because the sport goes back to the, you know, turn of the century, but the grand national system that we knew for so many years. So, um, yeah, Russ Weber for sure. I, I don't know how much time you've got, but there's another, another great Russ Weber story. To me, the best Russ Weber story. Um, Ralph Burnt, as his, that was his mechanic, and Ralph had a little workshop in the factory racing division where he built all of Carol's bikes, and then Carol would show up at the racetrack and ride the factory Harley. Um, I don't remember the year. It was the year Ricky, year after Ricky Graham was killed. We organized a Hall of Fame race at Springfield. A whole bunch of people put up money, and we ended up 
flying in every living Grand National champion, except Robert, who was in Europe, and um, I guess Brad Andres wasn't able to make it. Everybody else was there, including Russ Weber. So Dale Waxler, who owns the Wheels Through Time Museum, had located and purchased Ralph Burnt's workshop. He had all his old tools, a hand crank cam grinder, if you can imagine that, and, and the Blue Goose motorcycle. So he had all this stuff. This was before Wheels Through Time opened. He had it at his shop in uh, Mount Vernon, Illinois. And so he says to me, you got to get Russ Weber up there. I said, okay, we'll do an interview with him that we'll use somewhere. So we Monday morning after the Hall of Fame race, we load Russ Weber up, we drive up to Mount Vernon, and he didn't know anything about this. And we walked him in to the, to the shop, and here is Burnt's workshop and the Blue Goose. And Carol Russ Weber, this pretty gnarly, tough guy, got tears in his eyes. It was it was it was kind of heartrending to uh, to see the emotion that uh, that he felt at all the memories that came back from that from that period of time. It was very cool. And then sadly, the last time I saw him, he had he had he had crashed his Goldwing, racing his brother-in-law back from the New Orleans Supercross to his home in Baytown, Port Arthur, uh, and got off the road and into the swamp and busted himself up pretty badly. And he survived the crash, but not the nursing home where they sent him to uh, to rehab. So it's a, kind of a sad ending to you know, a, a, a typical racer life story in a lot of ways. They're all tough. They're all colorful. They're all fascinating individuals. Not always pretty, but still some of my favorite people. Yeah, I, I didn't know uh, much about uh, Res Weber. I, I mean, I'm, obviously that was way, way before my time, but obviously I knew the name. And, I mean, what you said made sense. He was a pioneer. I don't know why Corey didn't have him on the list. I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, champion, the, the championship and the numbers, the arguments other ways. But, yeah, what you said, I mean, the guy kind of reinvented uh, – of flat track motorcycle racing at the time. I mean, that's, you know, where you talked about turning the, turning the front wheel under the scrub speed. And, uh, I mean, obviously we have rear brakes now, but that's something that we still try to do today. You know, I, I mean, the rear brakes yeah. are only going to do so much, all your stopping powers in the front. So you try to turn that yeah. front end under and, and scrub some speed off with the front. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I've never looked at it that way, but, uh, it's only about a dozen guys that can do it really well it's, it's a very hard thing even at the professional level to take that front wheel at 100 mile an hour and scrub it under you you know with some precision that's not that's not easy and for him to do that i mean we know the kind of bikes they were riding back then it was nothing like we have now suspension or anything else wow. uh that's that's wow. pretty incredible actually to hear that yeah he, yeah and 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 you know he's he's special in a lot of ways but also you know, when you think about that era, he, he was sort of the heir to Joe Leonard. A lot of people know the name Joe Leonard outside the motorcycle world because he graduated from bikes to cars and became IndyCar champion and, and uh, you know, kind of a household name throughout the racing world. And then after uh, Leonard went on his way was Bart Markle, who's but, you know, a lot of people consider Bart to be the greatest ever. He, he won three championships, and he was, he was my hero because, as I said, I got interested just about the time Russ Weber got hurt 
But when I got interested, I fell in with a bunch of street racers, and I'm not proud of that. Probably wouldn't do it today, but back then, it was a different world. Uh, and the fastest street bike you could buy was a Harley Sportster, hard as that is to believe. And there are you know, <laughs> guys, with, guys with Triumph TTs will argue with that, but I never looked at the back of one uh, you know, when we did a lot of racing against a lot of different stuff. Um, so, you know, in that, then interestingly enough, the Harley Sportster isn't a bit faster today than it was back then, but back then it was considered pretty fast. And that continued until a little three cylinder Kawasaki two stroke came along. But anyway, um, we were all Harley guys. So our thing was go to the nationals and root for the Harley factory team against all those nasty triumph guys and BSA guys. And, um, you know, it was only later that I really appreciated people like Dick Mann or Gary Nixon for what they were and the heroes that they were, because we were Harley guys. And Markle was my favorite guy. <laughs> a friend of mine, years, years later, I think Bart had already died. A friend of mine uh, told me a Markle story. He had, this friend had promoted an indoor short track race in Nashville. And Markle was there. A lot of the big names were there because back then they didn't just race the nationals. They had to make a living running all the little local races. This was in the wintertime, so there was nothing going on. So, um, so they were all there. And so there's a local kid, and he, I think he might have even been a novice. Back then they ran the novices, juniors, and experts. I think they, even then they called them amateurs. Novices, amateurs, and experts all ran together on short tracks. Whatever the case, this kid wins his heat race, and the place goes crazy. He's on the front row for the main event. Everybody's just over the moon about this local boy against all the great heroes who have come to town to race. Throw the green flag. Kid gets a whole shot. Markle's on his rear wheel, and they run 24 and three-quarter laps that way. And into the last turn on the last lap, Markle just ran over him. I mean, just drove right through him and knocked the flag, the kid off, came around, took the checkered flag, came around. People are booing and throwing stuff and yelling. And it was an ugly scene. And my friend, the promoter, said he was really, really scared that it was going to get ugly. And the PA announcer in the little victory lane ceremony went up to Markle and, and asked him why he ran over the local hero. Markle looked at him, never hesitated, and said, never saw him. <laughs> he followed him for 24 and a half laps, never saw him, just ran right over him. He was a tough, tough guy. I mean, ex-Marine, Golden Gloves boxer. He wasn't very big, but he was, you know, he was bad. And, uh, you know, there again, you go back to the colorful personalities. Think of, think of all the names, Neil Keene, um, you know, Markle, as we, we talked about, um, Roger Riemann, who, who ended up, you know, many years later dying at Daytona, the place he loved so much where he won so many, um, you know, in, in a, in a, uh, a legends race. It just goes on and on and on. And I don't want to be the guy who, who, who makes it out that, you know, that those were the glory days and, you know, today is nothing to compare. I don't believe that. I think every era has its, has its appeal, but there were some really colorful characters back then. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's, uh, yeah, it's funny hearing some of those, uh, some of those old stories. I, I, I kind of do have to agree. I mean, I guess maybe 
since I lived some of them, it doesn't didn't seem as exciting, but it seems like there was a, a lot more a lot more going on um, back in those times and a, a lot more rivalries and just just crazy things happening. But like fast forward in a little bit, like into the 90s, when I think of uh, flat track in the 90s, obviously, I think, you know, watching uh, you and, and Bill Werner um, do the commentary, Chris Carr, Scott Parker, Ricky Graham, pretty much dominating all of the 90s. Who do you feel was was the most underrated guy in, in that time? Um, is, was there somebody that, other than those three, that, that stood out to you that uh, maybe didn't get the recognition or, you know, maybe didn't have the equipment or the or just didn't happen to get those wins and championships because uh, Parker and Carr and Graham were, uh, were hogging them all up? Yeah, that's, that's, a, really good, uh, that's a really good question. Uh, and I probably don't have an off-the-top-of-my-head answer. The, the name that came to mind as you were describing the criteria was Bubba. Uh, Bubba Schobert, you know, did in fact get championship when he was riding for the fame. But I think that the unfortunate part of that is he didn't get the opportunity to do what a lot of his predecessors did. And that was go on and, and show how talented he could have been at road racing because of the injury that he suffered in his first Grand Prix. Uh, I yeah. think he probably would have been, I don't, I don't think he'd have been Eddie Lawson or you know, Wayne Rainey, but I think he had the potential to at least challenge for the for the world championship. And that would have been fun to see. I always liked Bubba. I liked Don, his dad. They were they were great people. You know, Poovy certainly had a tremendous amount of talent and won a lot of races, was never able to put a whole championship season together. Graham of that group to me is the, the most fascinating character because he was so hard to understand, you know, I mean, he was the mercurial as a term that I guess gets, gets applied. I mean, he's a head case. And I, and I say that not necessarily entirely negatively because when his head was in the right place, he was unbeatable. Uh, nobody could touch him the year he won. What was it? Nine nationals is 12 nationals. I mean, there was nothing like that in the whole history of the sport that I can think of. Um, you know, in every kind of racetrack, he just, he was just, he just turned into a magical presence when things were right. And when things were wrong, I mean, it was a disaster, uh, and ended up, you know, ended up killing him. So I've always had a real kind of mixed emotion about, about Ricky, just because imagine what it would have been like if he'd been on all the time, if he hadn't had all those doubles in his head. Can you imagine what the numbers he would have put up? You know, I think he'd have, I think he'd have won more than Scotty. Um, hard as that is to believe, because Parker was <laughs> Parker was pretty special. Um, yeah, it's I don't know. That's a, that, that's that's a really good and really difficult question. I'm not sure if I thought about it from now till forever. I'd ever come up with it. No, that was that, that was good. I mean, that was my era kind of growing up. My dad raced in that era, and I got to go to the track. And those guys were my heroes growing up, Parker, Carr, Graham. And, yeah, for Ricky to win 12 races in 1993 and to do it as a privateer, essentially, against two of the best riders to ever do it, Parker and Carr, you know, it's, it's pretty crazy to think about. Um, for me, growing up, Rusty Rogers was one of my favorite riders. We talk a little, a little bit about it on the show. And... I've watched some of your races where you call the shots with Rusty and some of his highlight moments. 
uh, talk a little bit about what it was like watching that guy ride a motorcycle, and if you kind of re- you, if you remember any of the races that he competed in. I remember, yeah. I mean, he was, you know, again, maybe one of those guys that uh, a little better equipment here, a little more opportunity there, might have posted a lot, a lot bigger numbers. There were so many of those of those guys. I mean, it, we got spoiled, I think, by the talent level. We took it, we took for granted, um, you know, the, the, that there were just so many guys that were so good before I, I, I don't want to not say this when you talk about Parker and Carr, I wish I had the stat in front of me. I don't Chris Carr missed. I want to say it was four championships by a total of eight points or something like that. I mean, he and he and Parker were so close in terms of race wins and cha- or championships that came down to literally single-digit number of points decided, I think it was four championships, and, and they all fell Scotty's way. So it could very easily have been, you know, Scotty with, what, he's got nine, it could have been five, and how many did Chris win? Seven. Four, seven. Five, six, seven, seven. He could have had 11. I mean, it was just, I wish That's I had crazy. that in front of me. I didn't. I didn't think about that until the, uh, until you started rattling off those '90s names. It's a it's a phenomenal statistic, and and really is a, a tribute to to Carr um, in in a lot of ways. But flip side of that is, it's it's the guys who get the points when they matter, isn't it? Uh, that's the you know that's the that's the bottom line is winning when it counts. You want to hear a Ricky Graham story? Oh, of course. We of love course. Ricky Graham stories. <laughs> this, is, this is crazy. I played a role in, in uh, spreading one of the great fabrications of, of Grand National motorcycle history. 1984, I think. Springfield Mile postponed to the end of the season because of rain. Decides the championship between Ricky and Bubba, the two factory Hondas. Ricky needed to finish 10th or 11th to clinch. Well, it's Springfield. You know, Ricky's not going to go out and sit, you know, in 11th. So he goes straight to the front with Bubba and Ted Booty. And they run, three of them together, run away from the pack. And they're having their three-rider drafting derby. And, you know, Ricky's obviously going to win the championship wherever he finishes in those three. And he falls off. He and Booty banged handlebars coming out of two, and he crashed. <laughs> so it's like, wow, they went the championship. It was on the 23rd lap. So Bubba and Booty go on, and I can't see, you know, even from as high up as they put you at, at Springfield, you can't see the, the actual racetrack over in two, the exit of two, which is where he fell. But all of a sudden, they go around and take the white flag and come back around and Bubba sees Graham on the ground and (laughs) freaks out because all of a sudden he's going to be the champion, right? They run down to three and Bubba is so distracted that he rolls off too early and Booty passes him and gets enough of a run to get away from it, breaks the draft, and Bubba, instead of winning the race, finishes second. At about that time, Graham 
comes riding down the backstretch and through three and four and around the corner, one handlebar almost broken off the motorcycle. And everybody's like, wow, and here comes Graham, and he takes the checkered flag. And now everybody's like, well, where'd he finish? Who, who's the champion? Bill Amick was the AMA competition guy, and he, had, he was sweating bullets because he's over there with 100 people jammed around him, including me with a microphone, trying to get the points added up to figure out where Graham finished and what that did to the mass. And I'm thinking, how the hell did he get that motorcycle off the ground and running? Because he broke his arm in the crash. (laughs) (laughs) It was just just phenomenal. So they do the math, and they figure out that Ricky finished, Bubba finished second, Ricky finished, I think it was 13th, because there had been four guys that broke. And that gave Ricky the championship by one point. That's and everybody insane. went crazy. That's crazy. So I go, I, I go to Ricky, and I say, how did you get going? And, he, and he's in terrible pain because his arm was broken. He's holding his arm. He's, he's about to cry because he's so happy. And Miss Harley Davidson, who he was dating at the time, was hugging him. And, and you can imagine how emotional it was. And he said, it kept running. I don't know how I did it. I don't know how it did it, but it kept running. So I'm putting two and two together and thinking, okay, so the bike landed, but kept running, and he was able to get over there, get the clutch in, pick it up, and get going again, and finish 13th. Years later, many years later, a guy whose name escapes me at the moment, a reporter, called me about that race, and we started talking about it. And to make a long story short, number one, he didn't have to get up and finish the race, he would have been 13th laying on the ground because those other guys had already retired. None of us put that together that day. It was all this amazing Ricky Graham thing to come around and heroically finish the race in 13th. He was 13th whether he got up off the ground or not. Number two, not only did the motorcycle not continue to run, but Ricky didn't pick it up by himself. Peter Starr. Peter Starr is a, is a, is a wonderful, excellent uh, motorcycle videographer. And he we, somehow we called him. He said, oh, I've got video of that. He's an Englishman. He said, uh, yeah, I'll send it to you. And what he sent was a picture of some unidentified mystery man <laughs> jumping the fence, <laughs> running over, picking up the bike. Ricky runs over and jumps on it. Mystery man pushes him off and then runs and jumps back over the fence. I have no idea who it was. But m- much of what you have heard about that race is, is not true. And a big part of that is because of me. But, uh, and, and poor Bubba, I mean, just, I mean, he just blew it. He just he lost his concentration. He thought, when he saw Ricky on the ground, he couldn't believe it and just didn't run it into the corner like he should have and, and lost the race. If he'd won the race, he'd have been the champion. It was an amazing. And that, of course, was the year that, that he had been suspended uh, for three or four races at the start of the season for getting in a fist fight with Poovey at the Dallas short track. And I can't help thinking to this day, 
you know, when two guys from Texas at a short track in Texas have a punch at one another, I mean, that's not even a misdemeanor, much less being a, you know, a four-race suspension deal. That's, you know, it wouldn't be a night at the races without that. But anyway, that was, Bubba had made this miraculous comeback, and then that all happened. 84 Springfield, one of the great races of all time. Didn't mean yeah. that story to be quite that long. That was amazing. You know, that's a good one. I, as you started telling that story, I obviously that was uh, 84 was the year I was born. But I remember, I don't know if there was footage of it or what, but uh, I remember hearing either seeing that race or hearing that story. Um, yeah, I, I think just, it's in uh, the Ricky Graham documentary on YouTube. I think part of uh, that Ricky Graham documentary, yeah, yep. they show him taking off his leathers and Dave, Dave, you're there and you can see he's in pain. And I think he said in that interview that Booty knocked him off the bike, I think. I'm not sure if that is part of the race or the story, but yeah, that's that's incredible. I, I loved hearing that. Yeah, he and, he and Booty collided, and, and I don't remember that there was video of it, but it seems odd to me that Peter Starr would have been there shooting and that there wouldn't have been video of it. Otherwise, why, why would he have been there? I know we did it. We had a camera there for Motor Week, I suppose. Well, that would have been, yeah, that would have been Motor Week era, just a single camera. I don't, I don't remember how that all came together, but... Um, you know, Ricky and Ted had differing views of, of what happened, but the two of them definitely collided and Ricky got the worst of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sp- speaking of uh, falling off, breaking your arm and, and still winning the championship, we have a story here. I- I've never heard it, but I guess there's a story that uh, where, where you were announcing a race and actually fell off the scorer's tower, possibly broke your <laughs> leg or something like that. And finished calling the race, didn't miss a beat. Is that, uh, is that a true story or is that just something, uh, you know, uh, one of those myths that how how dedicated you were to to your job? Springfield again, Um, (laughs) you know, they put you on a four story construction scaffold to get you up high enough that you can see over the cars in the infield to to see the backstretch. When I was, I don't know, 21 or 22 years old, I broke my left ankle badly enough that after, I don't know, I think I did three surgeries on it. The orthopedic surgeon said, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I know you're a motorcycle guy, but if you break your ankle again, we're going to have to take your foot off. We're we're out of tricks. We, we, We can't fix it again. So don't break your ankle again. Okay. So I gave up dirt bike riding, which is how I had heard it at the time. I wasn't going to give up street bikes. And, and so anyway, my whole life, I've favored my left ankle because it's, you know, painful. So Larry Myers was supposed, it was going to be a TV race. Don't remember details, but I imagine Warner and I had done a stand-up uh, open for the show earlier in the day. And Myers was going to be the pit reporter and he would do the interviews on track, and his mother died, so he didn't come. So I'm it. And so I would have to climb up and down that construction scaffold every race to go do the winter interview. And I had, you know, all my notes and clipboard and stuff, and I just got in a hurry, and I was about a third of the way down, and, you know, using one hand, and then dropping that hand down to the next rung and then stepping down and, you know, doing it three-legged instead of four-legged and just missed the handhold and immediately started to go over backwards and didn't want to do that. 
so I let my feet go, so I came down feet first, and I know that all, what I did, just out of habit, was picked up my left ankle, uh, you know, to protect it, took the whole impact on the bottom of my right foot, and it crushed what they call the calcaneus, which is a, the bone, basically, that you would think of as your heel bone. And it hurt like hell. It made a really big bang because uh, of the wooden, wooden floor that I landed on. And so everybody's running around. And they go, what, 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 what happened? Well, Dave Durrell had won the semi. It was, it was the second semi, as I recall. And so the next thing I know, here's Durrell running up to me. He grabs my microphone and, and he turns it on and he said, and, and his best Dave Despain imitation says, well, ladies and gentlemen, we're here with Dave Despain, who's just had a terrible accident and we're <laughs> going to find out what happened to him. Dave, what happened? And he sticks the <laughs> microphone in my face. So, yeah, so I've got a, I've got a, uh, I didn't have a broken leg. I had a, a crushed right calcanus. And I thought, well, I'll just get, you know, a set of crutches from the, there was nobody else to do the PA. I'll get a set of crutches from the ambulance guys and we'll get through the rest of the day. We're at the second semi, so it was almost over. Well, the ambulance guy looked like, looked at me like an idiot because if you, if you, if, you know, if you need crutches, you don't need an ambulance. You know, we don't have crutches in the ambulance. So I, somebody generously got a big bucket of ice and I climbed back up and put my, Put in the ice and called the last, you know, couple of races. I was last chance qualifier probably, and and the main event. And uh, everybody considered that to be quite heroic. <laughs> you know, I just kind of thought of it as well. If I don't, who's gonna? And once I'm up there, you know, it's not a problem. It was obviously the getting up and getting down that was that had given me the difficulty. So you probably don't have any reason to remember this, but it, that was it was very cold and windy that day. And at the Indianapolis 500, next state over, so cold and windy that they had a whole bunch of crashes. Nelson PK, Jeff Andretti, there were a couple of others, all tore up their feet. That was back when the Indy cars were just death traps because they didn't have the foot box figured out. And so when you hit the wall in Indy, you crushed your feet. So I ended up having the famed Indy car surgeon, Dr. Terry Trammell, fix my ankle. I called him when I realized what had happened after I got back home, and he said, all the Indy, all those guys who have those famous IndyCar crashes that I end up, you know, patching them back up, they all have that injury because the first thing it hits is their heel. Now, in most cases, they've got dramatically more injuries way beyond what you've got, but they all have that one. So I know how to fix that, and he did. And I got what they call a pin track infection. Long story short, went in the hospital on Wednesday before Thanksgiving in 1992. Got out of the hospital January 17th. I was in the hospital longer than any of the IndyCar drivers who oh had just goodness. destroyed their feet. Yeah, because I had this weird infection that they couldn't get stopped. So yeah, that's, yeah. that's not, not my, not my favorite story in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's incredible. I, I heard about that story too, but I didn't know all the details. So that, that was good to hear kind of how that went down, but we have a couple more questions here and then we have one quick segment and we'll, 
we'll we'll stop bothering you. We appreciate you coming on and talking with us, man. It's it's a it's a good honor. And I don't know how much you follow the sport today at all. Um, you said that you don't follow it as much as you obviously did when you were broadcasting. But do you have any opinions on any of the riders that are racing today? Do you do you know of any of them? And uh, what do you think of the series? I don't know if you follow the series at all. Things how how they have changed. Oh, yeah. What are your thoughts? Yeah, no, that? I. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I pay attention to it. I don't I don't know it the way I would if I were going to go and announce the race, for example. I want to know what happened to everybody in the field since the week before. So I've got the you know the stories to tell, and I'm not that close to it anymore. I think Bauman is probably potentially one of the one of the real stars. Um, I mean, if, if he stays healthy. Uh, I think he could have a, a long and spectacularly successful career. Mies, to me, uh, has been the sort of the, the benchmark for, for quite a while, and I, I saw I watched that sort of unfold. He he was really good at at, at promoting himself, and and I mean that in the most positive way. He he'd be on me. Pretty pretty hard and pretty long to get a spot on uh, on wind tunnel, and I was really proud of him for that. And he did a great job with the interview. And then the next thing you know, he's you know he's worked out his Indian deal, which clearly was the Indian deal. You know, he's he's the gold standard. And for Bauman to to you know to do what he did last year and do it while hurt, that impresses me a lot. So I'm going to be real anxious to see how he does over the long term. Health of the series a little hard to measure. Sure doesn't help to be not running the you know the first part of this year's schedule and what was supposed to be the debut of the big Super Twins thing. I don't know quite how I feel about Super Twins versus the production class. Um, you can make a lot of arguments both ways. I worry about the rider turnout. I think the fact that, that the entries have been declining is not a good sign. And I think that's a real big argument for racing production motorcycles, production-based motorcycles. I don't think it was, and I'm not going to second-guess anybody for how we ended up this way, but I don't think it was a good situation to have Harley-Davidson racing a production-based motorcycle against a race-only Indian. Um, There needed to be more parity than that. And the failure to create that parity to me was a big mistake. Uh, that said, it is what it is. You know, we'll see how it unfolds. The, the notion that there will be a, a, a rebirth of, you know, different people have different opinions about what the, the golden era was. And I'm not one of those people who thinks that the era that I grew up in was the best by far. But there were certainly a lot to be said for the period of time when there were multiple factory teams, lots of riders with factory contracts, lots of opportunity. And to try to recreate that and have more manufacturers involved, I think, is a good thing. By the same token, I think it's important to remember that the value of those manufacturers is largely in the fan base that they bring. And if they don't bring a fan base, then the amount to which they pump up the series is a little limited. It looks good to have press releases that say, you know, we've got this many factory teams, but what you need is television advertising to support the TV package, at-race promotion, dealers selling tickets, all the things that help the sport as a whole grow. And sometimes I'm not 
100% convinced that that's what I'm seeing to the extent that, that we need to have it. All that said, I think the series in, in a lot of ways is, is healthier than it's been in a long time. There's a lot of buzz about it, and I think that's valuable, and I hope we're not going to lose too much of that to the, uh, to the virus uh, scare. I hope we can maintain that momentum and that the Super Twins class is very successful. But again, I still would like to see production-based motorcycles. I'd like to see 30 guys, 30, 30 riders going for whatever it is, 16 or 17 starting spots every week and uh, lots of different winners. But I'm not in charge, so that's that's kind of my that's kind of my take on on how I see the the situation right now. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, I mean that's a good take on it. I mean, like you said, there's a lot of buzz and a lot of things. Uh, you know, it's it's more popular, like you said, than it's been in a long time. But uh, still, yet to see the 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 fruit from it all. Um, I know it's a work in progress, and obviously, uh, what's going on right now is is not uh, not helping the cause for for anyone or anything right now, but um, but yeah, we got uh, we got one more one more quick little segment we like to do um, each episode. It's just uh, we call it high or low line, uh, just kind of a this or that. Just give you two different options and uh, see which uh, see which one you like and uh, you know give a little little description why. Just in general, I will say that I always like guys who go around the outside. Okay. <laughs> All right, I'll cross that one off the list. I'll cross if, that one. Off. If, if you're cutting, if you're cutting the strings on the hay bales, then you're you're doing it the way I might. <laughs> <laughs> it's not always the smartest, but it's the most fun to watch. <laughs> uh, so there's been uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a simple thing, but there's been a lot of debate over the years whether uh, whether the sport should be called dirt track or flat track. Um, you know, I, I was told by one one time, I, I forget who it was, but. Uh, they said uh, flat is not very exciting. Uh, the only thing that's flat are cornfields and middle school girls, or something like that. It was kind of it was kind of inappropriate, but um, but which uh, I mean, I guess in in your your heyday of flat track, uh, which we call it now, I mean it was dirt track. Um, you have any opinion yeah. on that? Which you prefer, dirt track or flat track? Well, I think dirt track is a little more encompassing. Uh, you know, the Peoria TT obviously is not flat. But I don't, and I don't remember when it changed, but if it were up to me, it would probably still be dirt track, which differentiates it from, from road racing. It doesn't differentiate it from motocross. I don't know. I, I'm not, uh, I'm not too hung up on that one, but I'll, I'll call it dirt track. Yeah. I think I like dirt track better as well, but the series is called American flat track now. So it's like trying to stay consistent, I think is a, is a good thing, but I'm with you dirt track and Jake, I think that story, that sounds like a Travis Smith story or a Travis Smith quote. Maybe I'm not sure, but, um, but next one I got for you, Dave racing, flat, uh, flat track motorcycle racing in the 1990s or in the current, which one would you prefer? 90s. Um, or even maybe like the seventies, pick a decade. We'll say which, which was your favorite for flat track. Racing. Oh, oh, well, in, in that case, it's easy. It'd be, it would be the sixties because that was when it was all new to me. And I was learning about it and seeing things that I couldn't even imagine a year earlier, uh, because I didn't know anything about it. I didn't come from a motorcycle family or a motorcycle background. I had no idea that these maniacs were out there doing this crazy fun stuff. So it was a, an era of discovery for me. So at a very personal level, uh, 
got to be got to be the the 60s in terms of watching the racing enjoying the racing mm, that's that's a tough one but because uh, I don't think of it so much in eras as I do as in, in you know the, the the riders the heroes so I'm gonna flunk on that one <laughs> yeah that's all right. that's a that's a tough one that's a tough one what we got another one tough one here we're gonna kind of put you on the spot on this one I mean I guess there's a couple ways you could look at it by stats or or however you want to look at it but uh Parker or Carr Parker, because of the the numbers, ultimately. I really liked Carr from the first time I met him. I met him when he was a novice. Uh, I guess I met Scotty when he was a novice. No, he was a junior. But Chris, he was 16 years old, showed up at the Dark County Fairgrounds in Ohio for a, might have been the night before the Newsies, I don't remember. But I just, you know, everybody, everybody was talking about this hot young kid from California. So I went down to interview him with my little tape recorder and two questions into it, thought this guy's going to be somebody. Parker was different. Parker was so raw and the, you know, the talent was obviously immense, but you, you wondered if he had the good sense to put all the pieces together. Turns out he did. I give Warner a lot of credit for that, but um, yeah, but in the end, Scotty's got the numbers, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. It's some, something to debate for sure. I mean, there was a time, I think even in Chris's prime where he went road racing for a couple of years, I think he told me, um, it was unrealistic. He would get a spot on the factory Harley team with Parker still there. So he went road racing, but, um, yeah, the numbers Scotty put up nine championships, 94 wins is, is incredible. And it's, it's crazy for me as a fan to think of what each of those guys would have possibly put up if they were in different errors. Like, you know, if, if Chris started riding, you know, if he was from the seventies or now, how many wins would Parker have had without Chris Carr and vice versa? It's, it's pretty crazy to think about, but, um, yeah, good answer. Uh, next one, Springfield mile or the Indy 500. What are you picking? Springfield mile. That's, That's easy. what I think. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to the Springfield mile probably, oh gosh, I don't know. I announced the first one when it came back. I missed the old Springfield mile. That would, again, that, they shut it down just about the time I was getting involved. But when it came back, whatever year that was, uh, I announced it and then did most of them for a long time. I don't know how many total, but I've never been to the Indy 500. I'd like to go. I'd like to see the Indy 500 sometime. I did 96 hours of live coverage of uh, practice one year, but never saw the race. I got on my motorcycle Saturday evening and and uh, left Indianapolis and went to Springfield to announce the Springfield Mile. So I actually made that decision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we kind of figured that was the answer through this interview. We could tell uh, how much uh, how much you really really enjoyed flat track, and that's uh, you know that's kind of why you you started started what you did. So yeah. So we got uh, we got one more here, kind of not flat track related, just uh, two guys that basically that the highest level of two wheels and the highest level of four wheels. Um, who do you think's a bigger, bigger talent, Mark Marquez or Lewis Hamilton? I don't know F1 well enough at the technical level to appreciate what Hamilton has accomplished. I don't know if Hamilton is doing anything that's game changing at risk of using that cliche. I mean, he continues to pile up big numbers and that, you know, that counts for a lot, but I don't know that he's done anything revolutionary. 
Mark Marquez is revolutionizing MotoGP with what he's doing with the front wheel. And the fact that nobody else, with the possible exception of Quartararo, is duplicating it indicates to me that he's rewriting the book in a way that's going to be very difficult for anybody else to match. And how that's going to, what the implication of that's going to be over the long haul, I don't know. But it seems, I think about the backflip. Uh, I, I, I think there's some con- controversy over who did the first one, Pastrana, and I don't remember who the other guy is. But, you know, you kept hearing about a backflip for years. Guys were working on it in the foam pit forever. And then Travis did it, and within six months, every freestyler, you know, worth the name, had a backflip. How did that happen? Well, one guy had to show him that it could be done. I thought the same thing would happen with Marquez. When he started saving it off his elbow, running it in until the front tucked intentionally, and then figuring out how to get it back up, I thought that's that's a backflip. That's something that in six months, everybody will be doing that. I mean, everybody at the pointy end of the field. And that has not happened. Quartararo appears to have the ability to sense it coming before it happens and then deal with it accordingly. And that could be just as important. But Marquez has revolutionized road racing with his ability to control the front end. And I don't see anybody else coming up that can do that. So that's a game changer. Uh, that's a great answer. I would agree. I think uh, what he's done, it, it's just it's just not talked about. I mean, everyone talks about Rossi and everything he's done and how, how phenomenal Rossi is. And to have somebody come in and pretty much just beat Rossi consistently, you know, is uh, is crazy. And Marquez, we like Marquez. He's a big flat track fan. He, he used to do the Super Prestigio race overseas at Brad Baker and Jared Meese and my sister, Shano. They were able to all do it. J.D. Beach, uh, a bunch of other sure. guys, too. So, yeah, we're big Marquez fans, but no, nah, Dave, we appreciate you coming on. Uh, we've been wanting to, wanting to have you on. We, get, we got some recommendations from, from some fans. Our producer, Chris Carter, he's a big Dave Despain fan, and uh, he, he's over here. on the, We're on Skype right now, and he's just loving every minute of it. So we appreciate you coming on and, and taking, time, taking some time to talk with us, and hopefully we'll see you at a flat track race in the future once we get rolling again. Any, any plans for that? Hope so. Uh, Chris, by the way, is one of the good guys. So uh, hats off to you, Chris. Appreciate you being involved here, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. It's been fun. Uh, I don't get out like I used to. A lot of reasons for that, but uh, I'm there watching uh, every week when uh, you know on uh, what used to be the fans' choice, and now I guess I've bought some sort of NBC thing, although I don't exactly know what it is, and haven't had reason to use it yet because we haven't had a race. But whether I'm there or not, I'll be watching. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks again for, uh, for coming on. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was cool to see you at Springfield, uh, a couple years ago. I think they had you for, uh, the grand marshal. So it was, uh, it was definitely cool to see you, see you back out at a flat track. And like Corey said, hopefully, uh, hopefully when things get rolling, uh, we'll, we'll hopefully get to see it one soon and, um, yeah, stay safe. Uh, hopefully we all get through what's, what's going on right now and, uh, get back to, uh, get back to normal and get back to racing. So, uh, thanks again. And yeah, hopefully we'll see you soon. Hope you two have a good, uh, have a good season and, uh, look forward to it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Thanks Dave. See you later. Thanks Dave. 
Dave Despain. Wow. That was that was awesome. I you can sit there and listen to that guy talk for man for forever. You know, he asked me before, he how long is this going to be? I was like, well, as long as we we can have you. We'd love to have you for as long as you're available. You know, he had so many great stories and just the passion and knowledge that he has of flat track. It, it's crazy. He's so insightful and just how he notices things with the bike and technical aspects of it that as riders, it's hard for, you don't see that from riders that know that much technical input of how the motorcycle works and how it can help you on the track. And for that guy to, to have that much knowledge is, is incredible. I know just, just the way he talks and the way he can explain things, you would think that I almost feel like I'm talking to an ex champion, you know, next motorsports champion, the, the way he can describe things and, you know, just him, you know, talking about Marquez and talking about Res Weber and, and what they have done to, you know, revolutionize and, and do something different. Um, yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. Like, he's, you know, he said it himself. He was a guy that did his homework. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of good announcers and, and a lot of good, you know, entertainment out there right now. But I don't know if there's ever going to be anybody as as knowledgeable and as that guy, because he could do it. He could, he could be a one man show. I mean, most, uh, most forms of motorsports, you know, you have your, you have your commentator and then you have your, uh, your color commentator, your ex driver or rider or whatever to kind of give the technical side. And then you have your announcer that, you know, can announce, but man, that guy, that guy could do it all. He, you know, he knows, he knows every inch of it, every, he knows every side of it. So, um, that's, and he doesn't uh, that's, really... that's pretty rare. He doesn't make a lot of mistakes with things he's talking about either. Like he's really precise with even at 74 years old, being out of the sport for that long, the detail that he remembers, like he was, you know, talking about, yeah, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving in 1984. It's like, what? Like, I don't remember what I did last week, let alone you remember dates, specific times. Like he, the, he talked about the dates he was in the hospital. He knew the exact date from when he went in to when he got out. And that was like 30 years ago. Um, it's phenomenal. It, it's crazy. And I was really impressed with how much he knew about the sport right now. Him talking about Meese and Bauman, how insightful that that was. Like he's a, he's still a fan. So yeah, it was, that was awesome. Good interview. I'd like to have him on again. Um, yeah. I don't know if I can call him back in a few months and say, Hey Dave, we'd like to have you on again. But yeah, that, that was really cool. Uh, it was interesting too. Like, like I talked about the, the front wheel thing that he mentioned, I want to talk a little bit about it before we wrap this up. That's not an easy, th- like I mentioned it to, to Dave, but pushing the front wheel to slow down at the top level. Now there's guys that do it for photos and they do it for videos and things like that because it looks cool, but to use it efficiently to go in and understeer your front wheel to slow down, that's a very hard thing to do. And I've only seen a handful of guys do it consistently to where it's efficient. Um, I'm just thinking of Carol Wesweber on, you know, those handlebars from back in the day, like the grips were like turned inside. It's like a wheelbarrow. Right in a wheelbarrow. Yeah, wheelbarrow grips. <laughs> I can just see that with like his like shanty ass tire on the front, whatever they use, like airplane Snoopy looking goggles and helmets. And he's going into the corner at a hundred and however fast those old bikes went and scrubbing the front. That's just, I would love to see like good video of that. It just would blow my mind. It would just blow me away. Just those bikes, the old bikes, we used to, I mean, at the Harley shop where I, where I grew up, we had some old flat track bikes. I sat on this thing. I'm like, nope. I was like, if we were racing back then, I wouldn't have been a racer. I would have done something else because uh, I can't ride this damn thing. So, yeah, that, that's just crazy to think about. 
Yeah, yeah, I always say the same thing. I see old vintage bikes and things like that, and my dad and, you know, some of his friends are like, oh, man, that was the best flat track bike ever. I'm looking at that thing. I said, if that was the best thing at the time, I would have found something better to do. But, yeah, I mean, I guess it's it's all it's all relative. I'm sure, uh, I don't know, I'm sure in another, well, we might all be iRacing in, in the next 10 years or whatever. It might, you know, who knows what's going to happen. But, I mean, 20 years from now, uh, we might be looking at an Indian FTR or a, or a Harley XR750 and go, what the hell were we thinking? You know, so it's it's just all about evolution and uh that's they didn't know any better that was that was the best thing they had at the time and uh it's just it's just all what you're used to but yeah i agree some of them old bikes man i'm like no brakes are you are you serious uh the the least thing that i'd be worried about you know dave said that it was more for safety in the pits i ain't concerned in the pits um <laughs> i need brakes i need brakes but yeah that was that was funny him talking about it being a safety feature i was i'm like ah, i I guess I don't nah I don't see it I don't see how it could be safer <laughs> it's like yeah they didn't want anyone slowing down going to the corner it's yeah. like yeah I don't want I anybody it. I don't want anybody pull you know pulling a move where they blow by three people and take your front wheel out either but uh, <laughs> but you know so yeah that was a, a great episode we're gonna wrap this up it's midday we're recording there's a lot of stuff to be done. Carter's helping us out here behind the scenes. So we appreciate Carter coming on and producing the show as always. And yeah, not much going on guys. Stay positive. Keep doing your, your part to uh, help this thing go away and let's get back to racing. I want to go to work, man. I want to travel. I want to race my motorcycle. I want to be happy at the races. I want to be pissed off at the races. You know, I want, I just want to be part of it again. It's just, uh, you take it for granted when you're, when you have it going and i think a lot of things right now that we're we're, we're accustomed to hell going to going out to dinner with your family we, we kind of take that for we took it for probably took it for granted so um just want to get get back to what we were doing and good show thanks again everybody jake anything you have to sign off with yeah i, I guess i'm just gonna go wash my van again uh it's, it's raining outside so it'll be nice tomorrow so i have to wash it wash the the, the water spots off tomorrow but uh but no yeah i stay healthy let's i want to go racing i need to go racing so uh yeah stay safe out there guys yeah, stay in the house let's, share let's the beat podcast this thing. like subscribe itunes soundcloud spotify and if you want to be a sponsor if you're interested hit, hit me up hit jacob carter we'll get you some info thanks again everybody thanks a lot in podcast episode 11 we appreciate you peace later mm-hmm.